TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. Earlier this month, Edmund Sigorski was set to be executed by the state of Tennessee after legal challenges to the lethal injection method used in August on Billy Ray Eyrick. Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam granted a reprieve so that the state could prepare the electric chair, which is an allowable method of killing for inmates who are sentenced to death before 1999. A few weeks after Governor Haslam called off the execution, the state announced Sigorski would be killed by electrocution Thursday, November 1st. We're recording this on October 29th, and our guest for this episode is Shane Claiborne, a speaker, activist, and author. He heads up the Red Letter Christians movement. He's also the visionary founder of The Simple Way in inner city Philadelphia. His community there has connected with radical faith communities around the world. He's a very vocal death penalty abolitionist. Shane's latest book is called Executing Grace, How the Death Penalty Killed Jesus and Why It's Killing Us. Shane also happens to be from Tennessee, and we invited him on the permanent record to discuss how we can think differently about the criminal justice system and especially the use of the death penalty. Shane, thanks for joining me. Hey, I'm delighted to be with you. I wish we had a little lighter subject to talk about, but uh, there's a lot at stake, so I'm I'm glad to be a part of the conversation. And you're always welcome back, but uh, you're right. I, I do, too. So, Shane, I try to ask this question of everyone uh, on this podcast. We've done about 30 maybe episodes or so, and I've asked it to police officers, former prosecutors, pastors, public defenders, elected officials, lots of people. You've actually written an entire book about it. So here's the question. What role do mercy and redemption have in the criminal justice system? Wow. Well, (laughs) I I think that they have a a huge role because what you see as you look closely at – the criminal justice system is that there are a lot of wounds. There are a lot of wounded people that create more wounds. Um, and there are a lot of folks that are, um, uh, that, that I am mean, at the end of the day, I think that we can do better than just, uh, punitive, uh, justice. And as a Christian, one of the things I look to is, is Jesus and the scripture. I know, you know, not all the listeners may be Christians, but what, strikes me as you look at the biblical concept of justice is that it wasn't just about punishing people for something they've done wrong, but um, the idea of righteousness and justice that are coupled together in uh, the Bible have everything to do with righting what was done wrong, with healing the wounds that have been done to a community. Um, and, and so that idea of restorative justice is not just asking what did they do wrong and what can we do to punish them for it, but it's saying what can heal the wounds. Uh, and, and I think that's a much better framework as we think about uh, what justice should, should really look like um, in our world. Yeah. You write in in the book, uh, Executing Grace, the scandalous part of grace is that it is big enough to include both the oppressed and the oppressors. Why is that scandalous? And, and, and let's talk more about restorative justice. 
<laughs> well, I think it's uh, scandalous because we like people. We like to write people off as beyond redemption, and yet the the whole Bible uh, is a redemption story. I think Jesus, you know, he himself says, "I didn't come for the righteous, but I came for the sinners. I came to heal the things that are wrong in the world." Um, and so, mercy and grace have a whole lot to do with that. Um, I mean, Jesus also, you know, he's faced with an execution in the Gospels of a woman that is. Um, caught in adultery, and it's a it was a death worthy crime, and folks are getting ready to kill her. And Jesus kind of interrupts these armed men um, and said, "Let let the one who is without sin cast the first stone." And so, at the end of the day, one of the questions I, I think is not just does someone deserve to die, but do we deserve to kill? Um, you know, none of us are beyond redemption, and none of us are above reproach. Um, and and I, I think God's redeeming the world. So even someone that has done something terrible. Um, uh, we're, we're all better than the worst things we've done and, and grace, uh, can get the last word if we'll let it. Yeah. And you, you pepper your book with, with so-called grace stories and you begin the book actually by talking about victims and talking about the horrible, heinous, uh, pain that, that crime can bring on a family, on an individual. Um, would you mind sharing maybe one of, of your favorite stories and in, in, in particular one that, that involves, you know, a victim who, who had a change in change of heart or, or was really instrumental in bringing about a kind of a restoration. Yeah, there's, there's so many stories out there and I didn't realize this till I started writing Executing Grace, but there, there's even groups like Journey of Hope that I've worked closely with that gets together uh, murder victims, family members together with family members of uh, the death penalty of execution together to say violence is the problem, not the solution. And the power of that's incredible because I think what a lot of murder victims' family members have seen is that the death penalty really just creates a new set of victims. It extends trauma. It exacerbates the wounds that are already there and does very little to actually bring closure and healing as it kind of uh, offers that empty promise. Um, so uh, there, there's so many stories that I encountered. The one that I, I think of is is uh, um, a, a woman... Um, named Mary Johnson in Minneapolis, and her only son was killed uh, in Minneapolis as a teenager. Um, the authorities caught the other young person, um, the, the, or the young person that was responsible for that. Um, and, uh, you know, initially, Mary Johnson was kind of like, I like anyone, I wanted the worst punishment possible. I mean, he killed, killed my boy. Um, and, and then um, she's kind of a Pentecostal, you know, what? <laughs> <laughs> she said, you know, the spirit of God kind of started to work on her. And it, it, she says that she read she read this poem that is uh, anonymous. No one really knows who wrote it, but it's this very powerful uh, image of these two angelic figures in heaven uh, talking to one another. And they can tell by the blue tint of their crown that they uh, experienced great trauma on earth as they lost their kids. And so these two moms are talking to each other. And the one mother realizes she's talking to, uh, to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she says, oh, holy Mary, uh, 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 you know, and embraces her. And then Mary looks back at her and says, tell me about your story. And uh, she says back to Mary, I am uh, the mother of Judas, Judas Iscariot, who is, mm. you know, many of us grew up reading the Bible. He was the one that betrayed Jesus, and then he hung himself and took his own life. And as my friend, Miss Johnson, was reading this back in Minneapolis, she says, I realize that there's another mother in this story. 
And she got to know the mother of O'Shea, the young man who killed her son. And they started an organization together called called Two Mothers. Um, And they have a a support group for moms who have lost their children to gun violence and uh, murder. And they also have a support group for the, the family members of folks uh, who have taken lives and most of them, you know, will spend the rest of their life in prison. Now, the end of that story was phenomenal, though, because uh, O'Shea, because he was a teenager, he was eventually released um, from prison and he became a part of this redemptive work. And when he was released from prison, the press, you know, interviewed him and he said, I feel like the luckiest man in the world to be welcomed home by two mothers. <laughs> And they became next door neighbors. And as you look at that, like it it doesn't turn a blind eye to the terrible thing that was done, but it just says that that we can do better than mirroring the violence that was done to us. And and in the end, even someone who's create great uh, pain can be a part of that redemption story. Yeah, and that, and that story illustrates uh, something else that struck me about your book, and, and I think you use the term superheroes of love, and, and you say that they're just everyday people, and as you describe stories like this one, you don't see, like, the you see this sort of gradual move by victims, families, or victims uh, to this place that you just described with, with Miss Mary Johnson. Um, what What is the, the thing that's in common, though, with, with people who make that journey as, as victims or, or families of victims? Well, I, I think that what is common is that there's some sort of connection that uh, the, the pain that I endured is now being imposed on another family. Um, and I, I, I experienced that when I uh, uh, came across Bud Welch's story. His daughter was killed in Oklahoma City and uh, Timothy McVeigh and you know was a part of that. And he said, when I saw Timothy McVeigh, I wanted to kill him. Mm-hmm. I, I would have done it with my own hands if I could. And then he saw an interview with Timothy McVeigh's father, and he's got tears rolling down his face. And uh, Bud Welch said, when I saw him, I felt like I was looking in the mirror. Those are the tears of a dad losing their child. And they actually became um, friends and walked with one another through their grief. And and Bud Welch became one of the most outspoken um, opponents of the execution, even for Timothy McVeigh. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, that, that, so I, I think that, that there's this commonality to just realize, wow, um, we, 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 violence is the problem, not the solution. And when I've stood with murder victims, families, that's exactly what they've said. Remember our loved ones, but not by killing someone else. Like that's not how our loved one would want to be remembered. Yeah. And, and as you point out, unfortunately though, um, uh, these executions are taking place in the Bible Belt. I think the statistic is that 85% of state executions in the last 38 years have been in the Bible Belt. And uh, so you, you say something to the effect of that the death penalty has, has thrived uh, because of Christians, you know, not in spite of them, as you might think. What do you mean by that? And, and how do you think um, that happened? Yeah, well, this is something that became so deeply troubling for me uh, as a Christian, um, is that when we, we we often talk so much about being pro-life, but we've so narrowly defined what it means to be pro-life to one issue, um, the abortion issue, you know, that, that really we would be more accurate to say we're um, pro-birth or we're anti-abortion, uh, because when it comes to other issues of life and death, um, like the death penalty, we've actually been the champions of death rather than the champions of life. And, and you know, exactly what you said, the, the, the places that the death penalty has survived in America 
is where Christians are most concentrated. Uh, as, as my friend Del Resinella, he's a chaplain on death row. He says the Bible belt is the death belt in America. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I felt the need to really address the, 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 the Bible and the, the biblical verses that I think are really misconstrued to justify the death penalty. Um, and, uh, uh, but but at the end of the day, it should break our hearts that uh, Christians have been the theological uh, backbone and, and really the moral foundation for justifying uh, the death penalty. I mean, you're, you know, as we're talking about Tennessee, Tennessee, uh, I think it was four years ago, brought the electric chair back. But here's the, the, the terrible paradox and irony is that they did that the week of Easter. Right. Well, we remember the execution and you know, the resurrection of Jesus. We brought the electric chair back. I said, you know, the only thing I could think being more offensive to Jesus would be um, starting to crucify people again. You know, it's kind of like we, we've missed the whole point. Right. Yeah. Um, and and so let's talk a little bit more about Tennessee and and. Uh, and sort of the arbitrary nature. I mean, four years ago they did that, and then it was another four years before there was even another date set for an execution. And um, it's it's sort of at least unclear to me. I don't follow it day in and day out. It's unclear to me why they've identified the the two people this fall that they have identified. And um, can you speak to that. I know you you cite a lot of statistics in your book, and you're very familiar with this issue. Um, the arbitrariness of this. How does that really? How does it impact? I like to talk a lot about policy and, and just removing our faith and removing all these moral issues we're talking about. The arbitrary nature of who has this carried out on them and who doesn't seems to me to just be bad policy. Talk, talk some about that. Yeah, well, it, as you look closely at the death penalty, what you what you recognize is that um, that we're, we, we have this idea that we're killing the worst of the worst. But that's just not true. Um, that that um, uh, often the determinant of who actually gets killed are very arbitrary things, like the resources of the defendant to defend himself uh, or herself. The the geography can determine who lives and dies. If you connect, commit the same crime in Connecticut as you do in Texas, you you get the, the, the you know different treatment. So, but but you even think of folks that. Um, uh, the, the old uh, cliche is uh, whoever doesn't have the capital gets the punishment. And you see that that, that often is actually very true, you know, and, uh, and, and the, uh, there's racial dynamics, there's economic dynamics. But, at the, you know, in the end, Jeffrey Dahmer didn't get the death penalty. Charles Manson died of natural causes in prison. Harvard-educated Ted Kaczynski is still alive. Um, you know, so we're not executing uh, the worst of the worst. We're executing the poorest of the poor and disproportionately um, uh, people of color. Um, and, and, and one of the other big determinants of who actually gets executed is the race of the, def- uh, of, of the victims. When the victims are uh, white and the defendant is a person of color, overwhelmingly um, that ends in uh, up in an execution, um, you know, and, and and it's important that we can't separate conversation around the death penalty from the rest of the criminal justice system and uh, uh, from uh, our history, uh, uh, the the sort of residue that slavery and racism have left us. Because what's also true is that where 
the, the states that held on to slavery the longest are the same states that have held on to the death penalty. And where lynchings were happening 100 years ago is precisely where executions continue to take place today. Yeah. Yeah. And let's stick with the death penalty for a minute and talk maybe a little bit more about this method, which is just so gut-wrenching. As you, as you said, we brought back the ability to execute someone with an electric chair in Tennessee, and that's what we're going to do later this week, if unless there's some sort of stay. Um, you go through the kind of the history of, of state-sanctioned uh, killings in your book, um, and the electric chair seems to be a step, I don't know, back, that doesn't seem right to put this on a continuum, but I mean, what does it mean to you when a, when a state in 2018 says we're going to do this again um, and, and put it in the context of, of the human history and how we have carried out state killings? So one of the things that I did in the book uh, was I interviewed um, Ron McAndrew, who oversaw executions. And I, I think the stories are so important because we can talk about statistics. But, it, um, you know, in the end, we're, we have folks that are left with the dirty work of taking someone's life and living with that. And Ron McAndrew uh, opened my eyes up to a piece of this I never really thought about, which is what does it do to the corrections officers, the prison wardens that uh, have to literally put hundreds of, uh, of, of volts of, of electricity into a body and watch someone die? Um, and he, Ron McAndrew was a prison warden in Florida. He oversaw executions by electric chair. And then one of those went haywire and the guy's head began to smoke and catch on fire. And Ron McAndrews, he said, I was done with the electric chair at that point. Um, he wasn't done with the death penalty. And he went to Texas to try to be trained in lethal injection in order to bring that back to uh, Florida and kind of pioneer uh, what he thought might be a more sanitized way of killing people. And yet when he began to oversee those executions by lethal injection, he was still haunted and in fact, he told me how the men whose lives he took uh, sat at the end of his bed and stared at him. And he, uh, he said to me, there's just no good way to kill someone. And as I'm talking to him, he's still, uh, you, you can tell he was a prison warden. He's a tough on crime kind of guy. You know, he said, if you do the crime, you should do the time. But the death penalty is altogether something different. Now, he's an expert witness, um, I, you know, it, it, on, on uh, the, the cruel and unusual punishment of, of the electric chair and, and of execution. Um, so, so th you know, that that's one thing that someone would say, well, how is this guy in Tennessee? Why does he want to be? Uh, uh, electrocuted. And uh, the, the fact is that many folks realize that all that you hear from folks on death row um, and lawyers and witnesses is that when someone is killed by lethal injection, it feels like their body is on fire and it feels like they're drowning in water for 15 or 20 minutes. And, and so, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Zagorski has, has chosen the electric chair, but, but, you know, at the end of the day, Ron McAndrew's right. There's just no good way to kill someone. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's, that's what, uh, I, I think a lot of the world has recognized when it comes to executing our own citizens. It, it's important to remember most of the world has, has found other ways of dealing with violent people than by killing them. And the, the top executing countries in the world are China. Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, 
uh, in Yemen, th- those are that's the company we keep. Right. So <laughs> you know, th- those are not the champions. Not who, of human rights. No, not who you want to be with. And you uh, to that to that uh, point of um, you know how difficult it is to to kill another person. You and Brian Stevenson, and you mentioned this in the book, make make the case about um, why we don't carry this type of retributive, retributive, hard word to say, uh, justice for other offenses, you know, like for, for other violent crimes like robbery or, or rape. Uh, make that point for us that you make in the book and that you and Brian Stevenson um, share about how, how we, you know, we, we only do this for murder and, and why don't we do it for the other things? Well, in the historic backdrop of this, it is important to remember that that capital murder is not, you know, capital crimes are not the only death worthy crimes, even that we've had here in the United States. Uh, um, When when the early colonies were forming, it was the Bible that they were using um, as they created uh, the the laws and the criminal, you know, justice system. And they they on the book, there were laws um, about bestiality um, because they had. Uh, a precedent in the Old Testament. There were laws about witchcraft and sorcery, which is where we get the Salem, you know, witch trials, uh, where we were literally executing people um, for other things. And uh, so when people tell me the Bible has the death penalty in it, I like to go back and dive into that a little bit, because in the in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, there are over 30 crimes that uh, were listed as death worthy crimes. And one of them was working on the Sabbath day, <laughs> disrespect, disrespecting your parents. So there's a whole lot of those. And, and so there aren't many people that are saying we want to bring the, that death penalty back. You know, if a kid's playing with a Ouija board, they should be killed, you know, or something. So, um, but then this idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is there. And it's one of the most, um, well-known passages of the Bible um, in the world. It was a a very ancient framework for thinking about justice that allowed for reciprocal harm. So literally, if someone poked your eye out, you had a legal right to poke their eye out. Um, An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth was very literal. But as you look at it, it was to the, the, the idea of lex talionis, where we get retaliation from, it was to set a limit on how much harm could be done. You could only do as much harm. So you might say, uh, an eye for an eye, no more. You, you couldn't do more damage than was done to you. And, uh, and that, that's why I, I love when Jesus comes and he points back at that and he says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I want to tell you this. And he shows us a better way that we can um, you know, uh, address evil without mirroring the evil. We can address the harm done without harming the person. So for most of us, I think we would think, um, yeah, if, if, if someone pokes your eye out, it's, we, can, we can do better than poking their eye out. If someone breaks your arm, we don't go break their arm. We don't rape someone who rapes to show that rape is wrong. But somehow in the most extreme case of murder, we still try to kill to show that killing is wrong. Uh, and 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 end up mirroring the very thing that we're trying to call out as evil. Yeah, yeah. And Tennessee is as you know again scheduled to do that later this week. 
Um, I, I know that there are there were a whole lot of political forces at, at play here in this state that, that sort of brought about the return to carrying out the death penalty. I don't know how familiar you are with those. And there was some specific legislation that you mentioned some already bringing back the electric chair. But and then the executive branch really has to has to get this going. Do you know any specifics about what kind of call? I mean, Bill Haslam has been the governor now for two terms. He, he finishes up this fall and, and he carried out his first execution just, I think, last month or you know earlier this fall. What happened? in Tennessee to bring us back into this? Yeah, it is such an important question. And I've I've had a chance to meet uh, Governor Haslam and to talk with him a little bit about this. In fact, we were speaking uh, uh, in Nashville. He was at a conference and uh, the Q conference, as it was called. And one of my friends asked him about this and he felt he seems very conflicted. And so then, you know, I think this is his last term as governor. You kind of go, man, he's gone like seven years without without an execution. Why would you? Um, uh, allow us to take such a terrible step back. You know, as most of the country is moving away from the death penalty, almost every year a new state abolishes it. Washington state just did that. You know, we see uh, fewer and fewer places that are actually executing um and yet Tennessee really seems to be going the wrong direction on this with these two new executions, which uh, uh, and, and many more that are lined up. Um, so what what I think is that there there is a resurgence of a more um, radicalized uh, uh, politics in our country right now, and 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 in some ways. Um, the death penalty, there is a, an, a group of people that would love to bring it back. I mean, Donald Trump has talked about this. Um, and there are, um, but the, the, to me, I mean, I, I want to appeal to Christians. And that's exactly what I did when I talked to Governor Haslam. As I said, you know, I, my question as one who claims to be Christian is, is what would Jesus have you do? You know, here's Jesus saying, uh, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. And you've got a chance to to show mercy. And I don't, I don't think you're going to face God and God's going to say, you should have been a little, you should have killed a few more people, <laughs> you know, but, right. but perhaps that we should have been a little bit more merciful. Now I, I can't uh, stop without telling you this final story. Cause right after I met governor Haslam, I went to Riverbend to Tennessee's death row. And I met with some of the guys there that I meet regularly, but this is one of my first encounters with them. And I said, listen to this on the way over here, I met governor Haslam and I had a chance to talk to him. And I, I kind of wonder what you all would say. You know, let's put the ball in your court. If you if you had a chance to say something to Governor Haslam, what would you say? And when I asked that, I knew that four of the men uh, at the time had had um, uh, execution dates. So they, they're, you know, they had an end to their life that was set that the governor really had the power over. And uh, there's total silence, as I say. What would you say to the governor? And then one of the guys says, I'd tell him he should come pray with us on Friday morning. Mm. And all the guys said, amen. And I thought, what a human yeah. request, right? And and yet that's exactly what happens with the death penalty is we create all these systemic bureaucratic layers so that we feel like no one is actually killing someone. And at the end of the day, you know, we, you've got a judge, you've got a jury, you've got a uh, usually a board of paroles, you've got a, a, a death team inside the prison. You've got all these different layers of folks that um, don't want to feel like they're killing anyone because it makes it harder to sleep at night. But when that person is killed um, on the death certificate of someone who's executed, it says manner of death, homicide. 
they were killed by, by the state. Right. And we all have a role to play in trying to stand up for life. And so I pray for the governor. I communicate with him as much as I can. And I'm heartbroken that he is allowing these executions to move forward. Yeah, yeah, I share that. Uh, and just to look a little bit to the future before I let you go, Shane, um, you know, mainline uh, Protestants, uh, evangelicals are changing their tune on this. Um uh, in, in part because of the work you do, and I, and I really thank you for that. Um, so, and, you know, on the, I guess, the grand timeline of human history, you know, we're in a better place than we've ever been. Um, it seems tough this week. It seems tough, especially after this weekend where we've had some some uh, violence in this country that has, you know, as you say, caused the president to start talking about the death penalty. And, and in our state, of course, we've, we've covered. But um, how do you see the conversation, especially among Christians, especially among mainline and, and evangelical Christians? Uh, where do you see it going um, in, in, the, in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I, I am hopeful, even even though every person that's killed, you know, is too many. And, and, you know, as we talk about the imminent execution in Tennessee, I have a very heavy heart being from there. Um, and yet, as you, you kind of zoom out a little bit nationally, executions are dropping almost every year. Um, they're the lowest they've been in two decades. Death sentences, um, kind of the futures of the death penalty, are the lowest they've been in almost uh, 50 years. So they're, they're, we're, we're moving away from the death penalty. Millennial Christians, which is encouraging to me, born after 1980, uh, a poll was done in 80 percent of millennial Christians are against the death penalty. Um, so it might also be an indication of the futures of our politicians <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who aren't leaning into some of that. I hope but, so. but, you know, and uh, I think it was Pew that asked Americans, would Jesus be for the death penalty? And 95% of Americans said, no, Jesus wouldn't be for the death penalty. Uh, we just got to convince the Christians to act more like him. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm encouraged. The Pope has been really vocal in calling for a worldwide abolition of the death penalty. He said, you know, uh, it, it's at odds with the gospel. Um, Mother Teresa was a shining light. Martin Luther King said that, that capital punishment is society's final assertion that we will not forgive. And, and so the, there's some beautiful voices. And yet, you know, half the Supreme Court is Catholic. I, I wish there were more Catholic like the Pope's Catholic. But, you know, <laughs> and, and governors in Texas and Tennessee and Georgia, many of them are Christians. And, and the fact is, if, if Christians decided um, to be more like Jesus and, and say that we, we don't want the death penalty, then the death penalty would be dead. And, uh, and so I, I'm encouraged, you know, Amy Grant uh, down there in Tennessee held a sign that said, uh, it's time to end the death penalty. Some great uh, uh, folks like the Wren Collective and uh, other bands are now coming out. So I think we need more and more folks to uh, 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 put their voices out there uh, and say it's time to, to end the death penalty. And for those of us that are Christians, we can do it um, in the name of Jesus, who, you know, the executed and risen Christ who um, said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Well, Shane, you're certainly doing your part. And uh, I can't thank you enough for taking a little time out to talk to us today. I can't thank you enough for uh, the book that you've written uh, and the work that you continue to do to bring this chapter uh, uh, to a close in our country. So thanks so much uh, for joining us. Bless you. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. That was ordinary radical Shane Claiborne. He's a Christian activist, speaker, author. You can read more about Shane on his website, shaneclaiborne.com. Last name is C-L-A-I-B-O. 
A-R-N-E, ShaneClaiborne.com. You can follow him on Twitter, at Shane Claiborne. Uh, as usual, if you want to check out the book, hit up Burke's Bookstore here in Memphis. The name of the book is Executing Grace, How the Death Penalty Killed Jesus and Why It's Killing Us. You can also get a copy at executinggrace.com. Shane has a new book coming out soon called Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence, a very relevant book. Pre-order it now at beatingguns.com. Can't wait to check that one out. Special thanks to Katie Rains for helping produce this episode. And as usual, thanks to Carla and Gil Worth at the OAM Network for their support of the podcasting community in Memphis. Check out some of their other shows at theoamnetwork.com. Jeff Hewlett wrote and performs She Got Gone, theme music for The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at JustCity901. Subscribe to The Permanent Record somewhere or give us a rating. Click the little stars. Tell us how many uh, you're willing to give us. It really helps us build our audience in a just city. We listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. TheOAMNetwork.com Power to the podcast.